Okay, I was a math teacher, so I'm sorry about this, but I have to put a math problem up there. So, but let me tell you, let me tell you why this is up there. Uh, a couple years ago, actually about 10 years ago, Kathy and I lived in uh, East Lansing, Michigan for a year and a half, worked in a church up there. And we got to know a, a guy who was a math education professor. And he was talking about kind of what he felt like was the sad state of math education in elementary schools today. Um, not, with, not true with John Roth's class. John's at our church as a fifth grade teacher. Not true with his class. But, and he said he went into an elementary school class to observe one time. I think his, one of his sons was in the class. And a teacher had a problem like this on the board. Two-fifths plus one-third equals three-eighths. All right? Now, for those of you who have any knowledge of math, I was totally incorrect on what I just said. Correct answer? Oh, wait a minute. Where's John Roth? Correct answer. John Roth, fifth grade teacher. What is it, John? 11 15th. Thank you very much. So this, this professor, math education professor, went up to the teacher after class and said, you know, I, I, I didn't want to embarrass you in front of the kids, but that's not really right. Two-fifths plus one-third. You've got to get a common denominator. You don't just add the top and the bottom. Three-eighths. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. He went back a week later, and she was doing the same thing with the kids. And he said he was really perplexed, and he went up to her, and he said, I, I, I'm, I'm a little confused because I told you last week you're not doing that correctly. And she said, I know, but the kids and I like it better this way. <laughs> so, and, and here's the point. What she was saying was, I'm more comfortable with this way of looking at reality. It's easier for me to function this way. Now, the reality is those kids, if they're taught that way, sooner or later are going to run into some level of mathematics, like the next year, where it's not going to work for them anymore. And if you try to build a house or a space shuttle or an airplane with that kind of mathematics, it's not going to work. So yes, it worked for the time of that school year. The teacher probably graded them all correct. Yes, yes, three eights. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not going to work. Now, here's what I want to say. What in your life, in terms of your spiritual life, spiritual habits, and we're going to talk about a specific issue today, it works for, it works for you right now and you're comfortable with it? But sooner or later, and maybe you've already hit that point, it's not working anymore. You, you're comfortable with this way of doing prayer or this way of understanding worship or this way of your spiritual life. And you're comfortable with it. It works. It's easy for you. But the reality is it's not going to help you become the kind of person that you know deep in your heart you want to be. The reality is, if you look at your current spiritual life, your habits, your spiritual activities, what you do, everything, are you really experiencing all that you think God has for you? And the answer, my guess is for most of us, is no. When Jesus talks about fullness of life and abundance and joy and contentment and peace in the midst of turmoil and all, hearing God and God telling us how to help people and help people be set free of sin and healing and suffering and Joy. I'll say joy again. I'll say joy about five times because how many of us would say we have the kind of joy that Jesus talks about that should be normal for our lives? And my guess is most of us would say, you know what? That feels like a really, really, really distant point. This is my life here, point A. This is the life Jesus talks about, point B. And the only way to get from point A to point B, in some sense, you've got to change something. 
If one half plus three fifths, and the way you add it isn't, it might be working for you now, but it's not going to get you to there. And a lot of times, many times, most times in our spiritual lives, you will, you will begin to become the man or woman that God designs you to be full of life and joy and abundance and power when you are willing to make yourself uncomfortable, change something, realize that the way you're doing isn't working or it won't work for what you want next. And you've kind of, you got to rattle yourself and make that move the next step. Now, one of the things we talk about at Exodus, a couple things just to kind of frame things. And I know some of you may be new here this morning and just want to kind of give a sense of, of who we are as Exodus. One of the things we say is our mission. Our mission in two words is two words. Simply, we, we believe our calling is, as people is to release life. We are called because Jesus said his mission was to set captives free, to release those who are in prison, to release those who are oppressed. That was the essence of his mission, mission in terms of the kingdom of God coming on earth. And then he says that his mission is now our mission. So our mission is to be a part of helping God set others free as well as ourselves being set free. All right, and having life come of us. We also say as our strategy, we have a three-word strategy, and that's stretch beyond comfort. If you're going to be the kind of person who is fully alive, awake, and free, full of the power of God, full of the goodness of God, full of peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, I skipped some, but that's okay. If you're going to be that kind of person, it will require a stretch. You can't keep doing things the way you've always done them because you and the kids like it that way. It won't work. Now, today we're going to talk about, uh, the next three weeks we're going to talk about worship. And there's a couple reasons. One, it's been something that's kind of been pressing on my heart for the last couple of weeks and months anyway. Two, uh, Jeremy Clark, who'd been leading our worship, has now got a job in another church full-time in another town. And so we're in a transition of musical worship. We're not in a transition of worship worship. We're in a transition of, of people leading for music. You know, John Kensick volunteered for us today. We'll have other volunteers in the next few weeks. So this is not to apologize for that. It's just, it's a teachable moment now for us to think about the concept of worship. With such questions like, why do we sing in churches? I had a conversation once with a pastor who said, I don't see any need to sing in church. Well, what would you say to him? Why do we sing in churches? What happens when we sing? Anything? When we sing, is it just sound vibrations off the roof and the ceiling and, and you feel kind of good because you're singing or you don't feel good because you don't like the song? Is there anything else going on when we sing? What, do, what, what are we supposed to do when we sing? What are we supposed to sing about? Does God care if we sing or not? What happens to God when we sing? What happens to us when we sing? All those questions. Sometimes it's good to ask those questions. Why do we meet at 1015? I don't know. But there's all kinds of questions good to step back and say, why do we do those things? And let's talk now about why do we do things like worship? So the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring some issues with worship, primarily with the reality that worship has a whole lot to do, a whole lot more to do with the invisible world than it is about notes and voices and loudness and softness. This week, what we're going to do to do that over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different Old Testament accounts of people involved in worship. And again, as I'm sharing these these next few weeks, I want you to think, is there some way in which God is asking you to change the way you think and maybe even change the way you 
practice. Change what you do. Changing what you're thinking is good, but if you don't start changing what you're doing, you will not become the kind of person that God designed you to be. All right? So to do that today, we're going to look at a uh, story from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, uh, about, it's about 1,000 B.C., so about 3,000 years ago, in the land of what is now Israel and what was then Israel, different boundaries then, um, that part of the world, uh, this actual location is near Jerusalem where this story takes place. It's within about 17, 18 miles of Jerusalem where this story takes place. And with a guy named King David. Most of you might know of David, David and Goliath. Uh, David who ended up becoming king and David who led Israel to what was referred to as the United Kingdom, the greatest time in the time of Israel's history in terms of prosperity, goodness, and the goodness of God in their land. All right. Now here's the context here. Uh, go back to the slide for a second. Here's the context. About 20 or 30 years prior to this story we're going to look at today, the Ark of the Covenant, which was, uh, if you've seen Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones, uh, the first one, was that the first one? Anyway, it's, it was this big uh, chest, golden chest, had poles sticking out so four people could carry it, and it had all kinds of symbolic things that God had designed as to, to, to build that that would represent the presence of God. And it was a sacred object. It was, uh, it was not just symbolizing, but it actually was the place where God would dwell kind of Old Testament temple behind the curtain, things like that. Anyway, it had been captured by the Philistines. Philistines are the bad guys. It had been captured by the Philistines 20 or 30 years earlier. Spent a couple days in Philistine temples, and the gods in those temples kept falling down because God's presence would not sit with those idols. So they finally, Philistines kind of get rid of it, and it ends up in a house of somebody in Israel uh, right across the border. And it sits there for 20 or 30 years. David has this vision and this passion of a temple for God, a permanent temple for God in Jerusalem, right? Where the ark is now sitting is about 17 and a half miles from Jerusalem. So David kind of, he gets his, uh, he becomes the king. He kind of, uh, his power base and everything gets all settled. And then he says, you know what? I want to get this ark back to Jerusalem. So they go, prior to this story, they go to the house. They put the ark on a cart and I'll stop for a second. When God first designed it, there was one way that the ark was to be moved, and it was not on a cart. So David either didn't know, didn't remember, or just didn't think it was a big deal that God said a certain way had to be done, all right? Starts to be moved toward Jerusalem. Like I said, 17 and a half miles, about a six-hour, seven-hour walk. And it start, the, the, one of the oxen stumble. The, the ark starts to, stops, starts to move off, and one of the guys thinking he was doing the right thing, reaches over to steady the ark from falling. And that guy dies. It actually says God put him to death because he touched something he wasn't supposed to do, which was largely a result of David moving in a way it wasn't supposed to move. And the Bible tells us David got angry at God. Like, he's trying to do the right thing, God. But he wasn't doing it in the right way. And again, it was somewhat of his own ignorance. But think right now, there's probably times in your life where you thought, well, I, I'm, I'm doing this. I think I have good intentions, God, but something's not working. So David's angry at God, like you and I can do. He pouts a bit. And then this story is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. Go to the next slide there. He go, he's like, this time, actually, he goes back. He goes to the priest, and the priests say, hey, 
We studied the law, we studied the, the, the scrolls, and the ark should only be moved by priests who are carrying the poles. And sometimes we don't do things the right way because of our lack of knowledge of what Scripture says. In this case, it costs dearly. So David decides, okay, now we're going to do it right this time. Um, we're going to add the numbers right, so to speak. David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. The city of David was another word for Jerusalem. Uh, with a great celebration. So they were doing it right. The priests were carrying it. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So there's all this sacrificial actions going on here. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Read that phrase with me. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. All right, we'll get back to that. Wearing a priestly garment. He was the king. He had taken off his kingly robes. All he had was, from what we understand, other passages of scripture, was kind of this linen undergarment, which was thought to be undignified from the wear that in that way. All right? Let me back up again, a little more context here. David was a warrior. He wasn't like Barishnikov from the ballet. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was a great leader. And he's dancing. So let that kind of, let that kind of paradox sit in your head a little bit. Leader, fighter, warrior killed Goliath, killed people in battle, and now he's dancing. He's the king, but he's dancing in front of everybody. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of the ram's horn. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, she had been given to David as his wife uh, when Saul was still alive. And you can read the story as to what David had to pay for a dowry. Some of you may know the story, may understand what I'm saying. Look it up and you'll be interested what David had to pay for the dowry to get this wife, Michael. But they loved each other at one time. She's looking out her window when she saw King David, her husband, leaping and dancing. And the, the sense of the word there is kind of leaping, dancing, twirling. I mean, King David, warrior, king, the leader. It's like watching George Bush or Barack Obama dancing in the streets or whatever. It's like, whoa. She was filled with contempt for him. All right, go. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he finished his sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. All the people returned to their home. A lot of joy, a lot of celebratory. David was probably just like pumped, all right? He goes home. David returned home to bless his own family, going home to bring goodness to his family, his wife, came out to meet him and she said in disgust how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. Ouch. And David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Some versions of your versions will say undignified than this. To be, and even to be, humili to be humiliated in my own eyes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am a distinguished. Last passage here. 
So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. There was a barrenness. We don't know exactly what the reason for that barrenness was, but there's a clear sense that the writer of this scripture passage wanted to understand that her contempt and disgust for her husband's expression of worship was somehow connected to the barrenness of her life. All right? Now, let's talk about Michael. All right, Michael is his wife. And I want to talk about Michael in a way that's going to be somewhat autobiographical at the same time. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a church where any kind of expression of worship was seen to be overly emotional and a little bit kooky. That's a biblical word, kooky. All right. And I remember seeing people raise their hands in worship and thinking to myself, <laughs> kind of that, you know, the roll your eyes thing? That, that, by the way, that is what contempt is. That comes from your heart. It's kind of this... Uh, who do they think they are? They think they're, more, they think they're better than me? Those, they're way too emotional. They've got to get it together. It's all, about, it's all about thinking right doctrine. Who cares about emotion? And then I remember the first time I saw somebody singing with their eyes closed, and I thought, seriously, come on. What are you, what are you trying to do, be impressive? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I'm not exaggerating about my reaction to that person. Because I felt a sense of contempt, kind of like the way I do it is really right. I mean, one half plus three fifths really is four eighths or whatever. I mean, I, I thought the way I was taught to understand worship really was the right way. And anybody else that did anything expressive. And if I ever saw anybody, and you've probably seen this before, people in worship, they kind of start bouncing up and down. Let's, okay, let's acknowledge there are some times where things are goofy. But in some times, they're really doing it as a response to God. When I saw that, I was just like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm out of this place. You know, check out of here. So not, most of us can relate to Michael. Let's be honest. Because sometimes expressiveness in worship does seem quite undignified. And let me back up for a second here. This is not a sermon to try to get anybody to feel guilty enough to raise your hands, clap, dance, or whatever you... That's not, what this, that's not a measure of your spirituality. I would assert, though, if there's things you will not do that the Bible talks about doing. If you say, I, I, will, I will never do that. I'll never raise my hands. I'll never clap. I'll never sing loudly because I just think it's inappropriate. Or I'll never... I'll never bow down, even in the privacy of my own home, I'll never bow down in prayer. I'll never put my forehead to the ground like they would in the Old Testament when people pray. I'll never do that. If there's things you think or you subconsciously have always realized, you'll never do that. That's, I am going to challenge you. Because when the Bible talks about those things, it doesn't say you do it all the time. I mean, my wife remembers going to a church of somebody, a friend of hers growing up, who was, it was like more of a charismatic church. And she said everybody would just naturally, I mean, she said she'd talk to her friend about school and the girl would always be doing this while they're talking during the song. Like, okay, that's a little bit, that's not the whole purpose of it. But if you, there are things you would say, I can't, I can see, I can't see myself ever doing that. Then you, like me, are in the company of Michael. Because what you're saying is, it's, and I'm talking about things that are biblically prescribed things. I mean, David, the psalmist, often in his, in his psalms calls to sing unto the Lord, shout, clap your hands, raise your hands, kneel, bow. And again, we don't do all those things all the time in corporate settings, and I'm not, we're not going to prescribe all those things necessarily. But if there are things of those 
biblical concepts that you would say, well, I can't see myself ever doing those, and I can't see myself ever wanting to do those, and I don't think I will, because if I do those things, I, and nobody, th- we don't think this consciously, if I do those things, I think it would feel kind of undignified. Because we are, as I am, and we all are, we are captive to the opinions of other people. So let's, so, so let's, let's, yes, let's acknowledge that what Michael did was uh, awful in the eyes of God. But let's not condemn her as, well, I can never see myself being like Michael, because I guarantee you most of us have Michael in us. And we've been Michael before. I've been Michael before. And I still, just, just when I was on my sabbatical, I was at a church and some guy in the front row started doing this when they were singing. And it's a guy I, I know and I respect, but I was still kind of like, really? Did you have too much caffeine this morning? Or? And then I had to back off and think, you know what? Maybe that's an expression that for some reason that God's asking him to do right now. And maybe there's something. And then I think maybe it would set me free if I was willing to do and again, please, if you're visiting here, this is, we're not, we don't judge each other by those things. And we're not going to say, now it's jumping time, let's go. We're not going to do that. So, you know, you can lose your awkwardness there. But let's just be honest about Michael and let's be honest about our, our ability to be just like her in judging other people's forms of expression in worship. All right? And let's at least acknowledge that, identify that when you see your heart going there repent, ask God to forgive you and give you an openness. And again, I'll say again, I've been in enough settings of worship where people do things that really are goofy in a really goofy way and they're really self-promotional. Example, there was a guy, I led a college ministry years ago and there was a guy that would always, during the, during the worship songs, he would sign language the words. He wasn't deaf or dumb, but he knew sign language. But he would do it like in this dramatic, I mean, it was just like, and it, was, it, began to, it began to be a distraction. And I wrestled with, do I say anything to him? I don't want to stifle anybody's expressiveness. But in my spirit, my sense was it was a little bit more about him. It was like he wanted to be seen by people. And you know what I'm talking about. because You've probably been in environments where you felt like people were a little bit expressive because they wanted people to see them. And I finally had the courage to go up to this guy. I was a college student. I was, you know, I was probably 35 by the time I went to this college student. I said, you know what? Can I just ask you? I, I think it's neat that you sign the songs. And I think it's neat that you sign them with exuberance and expression. But I... It, it seems to me, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this. It seems to me like you're going a little overboard and you're kind of doing it in a way where you want people to see you. It was a hard conversation. Here, I was 35, he was 19, but it's still hard for me. And he said, he said, you know what? I've wondered if that was the case. I, I, thanks for telling me. I, I kind of wondered if I was a, bit, a little bit more about me. I could probably tell their stories where it didn't go so well, but that one went well. So when I, my point is, my point is, yes, there are times where people do things that really are goofy and selfishly motivated, but don't let that cross off the rest of Scripture for you. Don't throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Now, let's go to David, heart of David, all right? Reminder again, David was a warrior, so he was a big... I don't know how, they were probably smaller human beings then or whatever, not, not as tall as we are, but he was a warrior. I mean, he killed people. 
He probably had, I mean, if, you know, if he was playing football today, he'd probably be a middle linebacker. He was that kind of, I mean, he was not just a warrior. He was a great leader. He was loved by his people. He was a man's man, if I can say that in the fullest of the biblical term. And he's kind of flipping around and dancing and twirling. And what do you do with all that? You know, I, and let me uh, talk about, because, you know, you think, what, what was David thinking? Was he aware that people were looking at him? And was he aware that people might be thinking? Did he have any clue that Michael would look at him in disgust? There's a pastor, and some of you may have heard me talk about this pastor, uh, but this pastor in California by the name of Jack Hayford, who is probably one of the most influential people in my life. I don't know him personally, but I've been to a lot of his training events. I've read his books, and I've probably got 100 sermon tapes of his, and I've listened to them all at least once, maybe twice. He, and it, it, he pastors a church that's incredibly biblical, but also has a really balanced sense of expressiveness and worship. And he said one time, this is one of my favorite stories, and it kind of, it kind of caught me off guard when he told the story. He wasn't in the habit. He was, he's expressive in worship, but he was in Africa one time, and it was at a church service, and these Africans, men in the service, were doing this little jig to worship, you know, that he said, frankly, I thought was a little silly. You know, this little worship jig, because he's like, you know, he raises his hands, they clap, he shouts. But at his church and in his personal life, he didn't dance. And so he remembers going back home and telling some of his pastor friends, yeah, it was, it was good, but there's this interesting little jig. It was kind of, he had the kind of rolling eyes, contempt raised eyebrows. One morning in his personal, quiet devotional time, being in, intensely spiritual, he says, God, God, I love you, and, and I will do anything for you. And he quickly and clearly hears the impression of the Spirit of the Lord inside of him saying, will you dance for me? And he's like, well, <laughs> did I get that right, God? You want me to, I, I, don't, I don't dance. And he, again, he was in a private room where no one would see him. And his reaction was, God, I... You know, and then he finally came up with this, this line. Okay, God, I would. I don't know any dances. Got you. <laughs> and God says, you know one. Remember Africa? And then Hayford writes, ah, checkmate. God has me there. And he said he remembers in his private room where he was fearful of looking undignified before himself. What's up with that? I mean, think about that. How many times were you, are you even afraid to do those things in private? And he remembers, he said he got up on the floor and started doing this little jig dance. And he said he wept like a baby. And this guy, when this happened to him, he was probably like 50 years old. And he said that, you know what? He realized there was nothing he would not do if Jesus asked him to do it. Now, their church didn't turn into a dancing marathon kind of church or whatever. But his point was, what are, are there things you would never do because you don't think you would do or could do because of dignity? There's a song, and here, I'm, again, I'm being kind of autobiographical and personal. There's a song, and I won't mention the song's name, but it's a Christian song, and there's part of the song where I remember when I first heard it, immediately to my mind, I saw myself, okay, weird meter kind of goes high here a little bit, all right? So give me some weird meter space, all right? I saw myself dancing in an open field. 
like twirling around, like jumping and leaping. And, and, and it was kind of like, whoa. And every time I listen to that song, that's what I think about. I envision this open field, and I'm in the middle of it, and I'm twirling around and dancing. And there have been some things that God has asked me to do in response to that that have felt very weird and awkward. But I'm, I feel like God was calling me, you know what? That, that is who you are. You're, you can be free. And again, weird meter. If you're, not, if you're new here at Axel, we talk about the weird meter. The weird meter is going to be a little higher, but that's okay. We know it's weird, so it makes it not so weird if we know it's weird, right? That's how, how it works. And there's been ways that God has asked me, and in some cases in my wife and I, both to express that, that freedom before him in ways that were really meaningful and really freeing for us. And every time I hear that song, I still think about it. I still see myself in that way. And I remember the first time, listened to, one of the first time I listened to that song, and I thought to myself, oh, I think I know now what David may have been feeling when he was dancing. He wasn't putting on a show. There really was something inside of him that was just like, I mean, why do you, when you hear a good song, why do you move with it? There's something that our body responds to music, right? You know, there's times if if it's really, you know, and we move, and and we do get involved in music and and worship. And you might say, well, not me. I'm not, I'm not emotional at all. Okay, backtrack last year. IU versus Kentucky basketball. Who made the last shot, Dan? Christian Wofford. Christian How many of you were watching it then? Or saw the replay? How many of you, when you saw the replay, were like, or saw it live, were like, that's good. Wow. I gotta write, <laughs> gotta write that down in my notes. Christian Watford makes game-winning shot. Now, how many of you were like, yeah! Hands raised high, right? Yeah! Dancing? Yeah! Shouting? Goosebumps? Like, whoa, it, it's a tra- something else is happening to me. I'm in another world. I, my life has identity and worth now because I'm an IU fan and we just beat Kentucky. <laughs> Who won't play us anymore, by the way. So don't tell me you're not an emotional, expressive, hands in the air, dancing, shouting, singing person. You are. You are. I am. And if you don't like sports, don't tell me that when you listen to your favorite band or rock group, if you go to a concert, don't tell me you sit there at the concert like this the whole time. Good chord progression. That was really good. Wow. I like the escalation of sound. It was really... No, you're up and you're clapping and you got your cell phone up. You're moving. Your, your body is responding to music or something that makes you feel large and part of a greater transcendent reality. But we don't often feel freedom to do that in the privacy of our own homes, let alone in church, because I don't want to feel weird. And so, let me go, let me go with one other story here in the New Testament here. And now I'm going to end with a question that I'm going to challenge everybody with. Um, this is in the New Testament where Jesus was doing ministry, and let me just read it, and I'll make a, a connection here in a second. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany. So now we're, of course, in the time of Jesus, a thousand years later, at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. Well, the word nard doesn't sound like it's a pretty smell, but I'm guessing it was. You know, nard. It's like lard. Really? Anyway. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. So they're sitting there eating. This woman comes in with this expensive perfume, opens the jar, pours it on Jesus' head in front of the whole dinner party. All right? 
Some of those at the table were indignant. Read Spirit of Michael. Why? It's way such expensive perfume, they ask. Could have been sold for a year's wages and money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. They were indignant. This is undignified in what just happened here. Spirit of Michael lives on, doesn't it? And then Jesus says, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? And again, this doesn't mean we don't exercise discernment when we think things, things are going really wacky in somebody in the name of Jesus, because there are a lot of wacky, unbiblical, ungodly, selfishly motivated things that happen in the name of Jesus. And there's times we need to exercise discernment and say, no, that's not of the Spirit. But there are many times where things happen that are of the Spirit of God and bring great honor and glory and joy to Jesus, but we criticize because we don't think, we, 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 get, we, we guess their motive. And we usually guess wrong. But Jesus says, why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? And they're just indignant, like, well. Here's the question of the morning. Are you willing to do something undignified for Jesus? And no, we're not going to have an undignified session here. I'm not going to ask you to. But is there something, for some of you, there may be something you've sensed that Jesus has already been prompting you to do that would make you look less than dignified in front of yourself maybe like in your quiet room at home, or in front of others in a, in a worship kind of setting. And your response is, uh, and you know, the source, of, the source of that fear really is pride. It's our pride because we don't want to be seen. We want to be seen as somewhat dignified and appropriate and religiously altogether. We don't want to be seen as emotional, although we're emotional at assembly hall and at concerts, but church, you know, emotions are bad. We're emotional beings. God made us that way. But is there something that Jesus asked you to do? Or if Jesus does ask you to do something this week in any setting, privately, worship setting or whatever, not being a distraction for the sake of selfish motivation, but just you know that Jesus is saying, do this and don't care how people think about you and don't care what you think about yourself. And are you willing to at least tell Jesus, like Pastor Hayford said to Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you. I'll break this expensive jar of perfume over you, i.e., I'll give you a lot of money, Jesus, and it feels weird to do that. Or I'll, you know, my parents think it's, it's silly that I want to go on this missions project, this summer project with this ministry, and they think it's silly, and un- I'm going to do it because I think God's asked me to. Or maybe there is an expressiveness of worship. Maybe it's a clapping hands, raising hands. And again, I'm not, we're not measuring that. We're not going to, we don't, we don't, we don't have a camera on the place. We're not going to gauge how many more people are raising their hands than they did a week ago. We're not doing that. Um, but if you're, if you're used to doing this, maybe do this. You're used to this, maybe do this. I mean, I remember the first couple of times I raised my hand. And I'm, I grew up in an incredibly non-expressive emotional family. I was emotionally illiterate and I'm still like at a second grade level. All right, so understand there was no expression in my family we never hugged first time I hugged my dad was when he was dead in a hospital bed all right so I'm not I didn't grow up with this I was really expressive at basketball games and baseball games football games but in life no and in church never but maybe there's something that God will ask you to do that will stretch you a bit 
I remember the first couple of times I did this. I couldn't even extend my arms. That felt too vulnerable, too. So I was kind of bending, or I'd do this. And you know the game. You, you, you're, some of you might be laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, try it at home in a quiet room where nobody can see you. Make sure nobody's going to be there. Pull the shades down. Lock the doors. Listen to a worship song and just see if you can even do that. And my guess is you're going to be like me. Oh, that feels weird. Even though you know nobody's watching. Maybe, maybe as simple as kneeling down in front of a chair where you have your quiet time at home. Again, nobody's watching. You lock the doors. The kids aren't going to break in. Their husband's not going to see you. You're just going to get on your knees. Or maybe if it's like getting on your knees and sometimes, you know, putting your forehead to the ground, which is the way often in the Bible times they prayed. Nobody's going to see you, but it's, you're going to believe me. It's going to feel weird to you. But there's something about the connection of our bodies to our souls and our freedom is tied up intricately in these things. So like I said earlier, there's these kind of people we want to be. And if the way you're doing it now isn't working, if you don't see any movement toward that kind of person, maybe God is asking you and telling you that's not going to work anymore for you. I want you to become this kind of person because you really are free. So that's a simple question. It's a simple question with a really, really hard answer that you have to answer yourself. Is there anything, is there, are you willing to do something undignified for Jesus if he were to ask you to do that? And so uh, let me pray, and then we're going to take communion. Jesus, um, we said at the start of the service that our biggest concern was that you enjoy what we offer you. And we continue to acknowledge that it's what you think of us is what matters most. Now, we know we're not fully there yet because we're still slaves to the fear of other opinions, even of our spouses, of our kids. If they see us doing something that looks like raising their hands or whatever, and we even have these fears about our opinion of ourselves in a quiet room, expressing ourselves to you. But Jesus, we know and help us to become the kind of people who are solely obsessed with what you think about us. You think about our hearts, what you think about our obedience, what do you think, what do you think about our willingness to show and express love to you in ways in which our body is involved because you made our bodies as part of who we are. So we love you, Jesus, and uh, we affirm to you we will do anything you ask us to do um, because we know you want to set us free. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we finish every week with communion at Exodus. And, uh